We now want to hear from a person who's come from, I think, the East Coast. Pretty sure. I read her book. Mary Ann's going to introduce her. This book, though, I just want to say stands out, stands above all the, the books that I have read this year. I don't know why it got to me so well. Maybe others will have a different opinion. I don't know. But I love this book so much, and I, I recommend it. If you, if you want to buy one more book, that would be our author tonight. But I'm not even going to say it because I don't want to steal the thunder from Mary Ann, who has worked so hard to find excellent authors to be with us at this week. And I am eager to hear what not only Marianne has to say, but what with this, my favorite author of 2023 has to say. Please welcome our speaker curator, Marianne Dougherty. Okay, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about how I found this writer. So I have mentioned this before, this Ethel Circle site on Facebook. This is where lots of women of a certain age go, and they, are, they share with each other. It's a private group. You can unload on every bad thing ever happened, stuff about your kids, and people send you hundreds of wonderful responses. I understand where you're at, et cetera. So I'm on there one night, and I see this book cover. And I thought, ooh, and this person writes about this book. And I thought, OK, another writer. i got to check that out, because I like to support female writers. And I looked it up on Amazon. And I wanted to see what it was. I thought, I mean, it could be terrible. Who knows? Anybody could put anything up. But I thought, I have to look it up, and I'm going to read the beginning. Because I wrote something earlier this week in the daily briefing about how you're opening, how you open your book. The first line, the first couple of lines is so crucial. It establishes everything, the tone, what you think is going to happen. And I read these three lines. It was like, oh, I've got to find this person. So here's how it starts. The day Donald Ray Spencer was killed, he caught four catfish. I found them right there beside him on the floorboards, wrapped in yesterday's paper. They looked as surprised to be dead as the boy did. Now, if you can't order, I went bing by this book. I got it. I read it. And I was like flipping out. It is so good. Grace is right. It's got every, This is a book that shows you what happens when you take when you have maturity, when you've practiced your craft for many years, when you when you know how to refine and polish a sentence like a gem. And that's what she did. Every word is carefully thought out. There's nothing wasted in this book, but the story is incredible. And she will get into that, so I'll let her do that. But what I, I want to tell you is it's already won a bunch of awards. Right now, the book is the gold medalist in the Southern Regional Fiction for the 2023 Independent Publisher Book Awards. This book was published by Regal House out of uh, North Carolina. And it also, in the Eric Hoffer Book Awards, the novel was shortlisted for the grand prize, won an honorable mention in general fiction, and was a finalist for the Hoffer Debut Novel Award. I think this award is associated with Berkeley, is it? Yeah, Berkeley University. One thing she does, not only is she a great writer, but she really knows how to work the 
entering stuff. She's entered contests. She enters. She really works it. She isn't just like, oh, I'll just wait and see who finds this book. She really works hard at promoting her work. She's also supportive of other writers. She's been great to me. I mean, really, she. I, my book came out, and she's posted everywhere. I posted something on the Ethel site, and she went right up to the top, buy this book, and then tells you why. It's like, I, I feel like writers and, and often female writers, we need to support each other. And we need to buy each other's books and we need to talk about them and promote them. And she's really great at that. But you are in for a treat tonight because this is a major voice in fiction. She's got a couple other books in her already. So I can't wait to read them. Once you read this, you'll be a fan. Follow her, do whatever you have to do so you find out when she has the next one coming out. And you're going to love it. Judith Turner Yamamoto. You know, the last time that I was in Santa Barbara, um, it was 35 years ago, and I was on this very beach with my two-year-old, and he's playing at the water's edge, and I'm stealing moments to write some of the first pages of Loving the Dead and Gone. And, you know, now here I am, all these years later, with said novel. So <laughs> um, it's been a journey. Um, Zora Neale Hurston wrote, there is no agony like bearing an untold story inside you. Tonight, I want to talk about finding fiction in fractured families. How do you harness your own life experiences, your desires, your struggles, your fears, your traumas, and how do you use them to inform your world making and character building? I'm going to share a bit of my journey in creating such a story tonight. Tolstoy's novel, Anna Karenina, opens with the often quoted line, all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. You know, families can be both the safest and the most dangerous places for individuals. The damage done in families is often subtle, insidious, and profound. While the default association is of family is it's a place of love, it's a place of support and nurture, but that's not always the story or the universal experience. Trauma is a shape shifter. It can manifest in a myriad quiet ways from having a parent deny your reality and feelings, having to minimize yourself or your presence, or being made the peacemaker in a chaotic home. You know, I recently learned about this term, enmeshment trauma. I guess they're developing a lot of new terms to drill down into trauma. But it really resonated with my own experience growing up. And it's a childhood emotional trauma that involves a disregard for personal boundaries. And this type of over-intimacy becomes traumatic when children are exposed to inappropriate situations that adults should protect them from. 
and when a child's expected to take on adult emotions in their responses. You know, writing about fractured families, it's, this is not an easy task. It requires courage, vulnerability, and the willingness to face our own wounds. The harder it is to write about, the better it's going to be. Our stories have the power to heal both ourselves and our readers. In the cracks in our families, we can find the space to explore and understand our own traumas, to navigate emotions, and to come out the other side transformed. You know, as I thought about this exploration of the fault lines in our families, <clears throat> one word kept coming around in my mind. It's hiraith. It's an old Welsh word of Celtic origin. And, you know, like the, the best words, it's, it's not easy to define. Uh, superficially, it's like homesickness, nostalgia, longing. But if you go deeper, it's about this pull on the heart, this feeling of missing something that's irretrievably lost or longing for something you never had. You can... Feel it staring, whoops, staring out at this ocean. You can feel it staring up at a star-filled sky. Or you can look closer, and you can look inside yourself, and, and you can find it there in this unresolved past. There is, at the heart of this word, here I, a blend of place, time, and people that can never be recreated. And in that unreachable nature is grief and unattainable longing. Ananis Nen said, the role of a writer is not to say what we all can say, but what we are unable to say. Family trauma takes a long time to address and to grant a voice but it's something unique that you carry with you like your fingerprints. And it is in the telling of these personal stories that I believe we find our unique and distinct voice and call forth the universality of Hirai, which holds meaning for everyone. We want to create stories that as novelist Simon von Bui wrote, lead us behind the curtain of somebody else's life into the deepest chambers of our own lives. Now, it's important to, to determine exactly what lies in your deepest chambers. It's from this place that we reach the deepest truths of our characters. It took me decades and feedback from my readers to distill that for myself down to the core wounds of longing and loss. In expressing these emotions, I explore the margins between the selves we present to the world and those selves 
that we long to understand and to have known. I'm looking for the us in the I, what the novel says that's true for all of us. Two of the most prevalent themes in Loving the Dead and Gone are right there in the title, Love and Loss. And at its heart, it's a story of longing and emotional abandonment. You could say I've been writing this book since I was three, and um, I experienced a, s a similar sudden tragic death of uh, a, a young uncle. And the inspiration grew from this, my first memory, and conflated with later parental perfidies and emotional enmeshment during my adolescence to become loving the dead and gone. But memory is unreliable, and it's rarely objective truth. I learned only a few years ago that my uncle had not, as I remembered it, been fishing the day he died. It was, in fact, the first time, the only time, that my father took me fishing. So I got it all wrong. But that's where the art comes in. What we think we remember does tell an important story. It's one that affects our identities, the stories we choose to write, and the legacy we pass down through generations. My 17-year-old aunt, widowed by a car accident and locked in my grandparents' bathroom, she was wailing this ungodly lament. I can still hear her, and I can see my uncle in his casket. The story I tell is not the story literally as it happened, but intergenerational memory and personal trauma informed my imagination and enriched the work. Family legacy has proven to be a powerful well from which to draw and to breathe life and urgency into my characters. If you are using your art to process and understand emotion, and to find meaning, you're not unlike the TV writing teams who lock themselves in the writing room, it's kind of an emotional safe house, where they mine their own lives for these events and experiences that they can give their characters to create a living being that audiences will relate to. The novelist Elizabeth Strout has said that she became a writer because she wanted to know what other people were thinking. And books are our only window into that experience. Exploring family stories and assessing the inner life of a character can help explain someone from your history. I found this process helped me better understand the family members and the events that shaped my early life. As writers, we can also be like fairy godmothers probably the very bad ones, as we gift our characters trouble, maybe some trouble we're carrying, and then they have to get themselves out of it. My choral novel delves into the mind of four characters and how the traumas of the present 
stir the traumas of the past. Donald Ray's death is like a stone in a pond. I'm going to read from the opening pages of the novel in this first ripple. <clears throat> 1963, Clayton. The day Donald Ray Spencer was killed, he caught four catfish. I found them right there beside him on the floorboard, wrapped in yesterday's paper. They looked as surprised to be dead as the boy did. He lay there all slumped over the passenger seat, his left eye staring right back at the fish. I'd come out fishing myself that Friday. A man couldn't work on a spring afternoon like that. Hot, like the first day of summer. The sun made everything green come up looking brighter than you ever remembered. You wanted to sleep, the earth was working so hard. And I didn't know a better place to do that than at the end of a fishing pole. Days like that, Goldridge almost deserved its name. The smell of the earth rose up sweet and clean from acres and acres of plowed furrows like something precious forgotten. In a place where farming is everything, it was easy to go blind to the rolling green hills and the piney woods that made up this plateau between the Carolina coast and the Appalachian mountains to curse the red clay for what's missing instead of praising it for what it's got. I'd been putting in corn all that morning for my daddy. Erna May says I'm a fool to work for him like I do since I don't get a red cent from what he grows in the fields he still calls his own. And I say, look how cheap he rents me the land I do use. Berta May never looks at what she has, just at what she thinks she ought to have. And that's a big part of what makes her so miserable. It must have been 3 o'clock by the time I got my equipment put up and my dinner ate back at the house. Driving the gravel road, snaking down to Ramsey Lake, the dirt rose behind me in big clouds that showed yellow against the blue sky. The ditches on both sides looked like orange ribbons rolled out in welcome. When I first came around the bend, everything looked fine. I saw Buford's car and Donald Ray's old Chevy parked in front. I remember thinking, I'm not the only man that can't think straight in weather like this. Donald Ray was working third shift. He had his days to kill. And Buford Jones was a little bit of a mental case and didn't do a thing but lay drunk. And he could do that at the lake as well as anywhere else. Then I saw Buford's car had smashed into the back of Donald Ray's, the twisted grill resting in what had been the back seat. Here's two dead men, I thought and that Cracker Jack day took some kind of turn. I got out, not wanting to look, but knowing I had to, being the first one to find them and all. 
Buford's radiator was still hissing. His car was empty and he was nowhere around. Probably down in the woods without a scratch on him, hugging a pint, waiting for the whole thing to clear out. There was a complete quiet over things. A fish jumped and then hit the lake with a hollow slap. I watched the circles on the water's surface grow and grow until they didn't count as circles anymore. I opened Donald Ray's passenger door, reached for the boy's right wrist where it hung limp over the seat. The flesh was warm but lifeless and the strange contradiction made my heart pound. Either the boy had just died or the son was playing tricks. I didn't know enough about such things to be able to tell the difference. The boy was 19, maybe, not a day more. I took Donald Ray's wrist again to be sure I got back nothing but an emptiness I felt deep inside. Donald Ray didn't look like he'd suffered. More like he just slipped away as if the going was all right by him. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So, a trauma, it meets us where we are. Donald Ray caught four catfish the day he died. The four main characters become ensnared, each in their own way in this tragedy, and work their way to release individually. After discovering Donald Ray's body, Clayton's thrown into a midlife crisis. He realizes he's been emotionally dead himself for years, and he can't shake the feeling that he's living for this dead boy. Bertame, his wife, struggles with her mother's lifelong withholding of love and this growing crisis and distance in her marriage. Orilla, Bertame's mother, is, as we say in the South, too mean to die. But we come to learn she has a past that's riddled with unspeakable losses and deeply bruising secrets that she'll carry to her grave. And then there's Darlene, the impetuous, fiery, 17-year-old widow. She struggles with losing a new husband and with trying to keep him and herself alive. And she crashes into Arilla's family with the life-destroying, life-generating force of a meteor. And back to the fairy godmother thing, um, you know, when we write fiction, more often than in life, there's redemption, the theme we all crave. In telling my character's stories, I created an infidelity that felt compelled into being by tragic events, and there's a sense of being haunted and possessed. There's a hard-as-nails grandmother who makes sense of and peace with her own past to save her granddaughter, Imogene. And I wanted to give Imogene and her grandmother an advocate, someone who was looking out for her interest, 
something that was absent from my own experience of family breakdown. I wanted to free someone from the strictures of place, and she became Darlene, this headstrong, impulsive widow. I, I didn't have an easy relationship with where I grew up. It was a place I was always trying to escape, first through books, which showed me another world. The limits of small towns, especially southern ones, can be incredibly crushing, especially if you're questioning and intellectually curious. And all of that was confounded by an absent father and a boundaryless, narcissistic mother, their tumultuous relationships and infidelities, and having adulthood imposed on me at an early age. But when you have this kind of family estrangement, you can find that you become the reluctant archivist of these emotional gaps. When I first started writing fiction, it was um, at, in a class at Georgetown University with um, the amazing Shirley Cochran, who was coincidentally a fellow North Carolinian. It, I found myself right back in that place, in the store up the road from my paternal grandparents' farm that was owned by a little person and his wife. My father wasn't around much when I was small, but I, I have this generalized memory of going with him into this tiny place in the summer heat, into this cool darkness, and there was this unspoken strangeness of it all. And it was broken only by these sweating brownie drinks and RC colas pulled from the drink box. And I wrote a scene for that class in that store, and it was the beginning of everything. And Shirley encouraged me to keep going with this insular and unique place where, again, despite my best efforts, I had found myself. So how do we get to these distant memories and return to the time and place where they were formed so that we can get at their emotional core? That place for me is rural North Carolina in the Appalachian diaspora. It's a place where people work the land or they left the land to work the mills. This place is the site of both family connection and distance. You know, if memories were photographs, I imagine pushing back the frame and entering them and deploying sense and emotional memory. What do I hear? What do I smell? What are people talking about? What are their burdens? What are their grievances? To write this book, I put myself back on the land and in the farmhouses and the fields and the barns of my grandparents and my great-grandparents. I belong to the first generation in 10 not to have an intimate connection to family land. But every weekend, we were back on those farms. And it was like entering a time machine. It was like being transported a century away from my experience growing up in a mill town 12 miles away. My paternal grandmother washed her clothes in a wash house with a ringer washer. 
She milked, she canned, she worked in the fields, she was illiterate, she chewed tobacco. There was a whole room in her house filled with old funeral wreaths. <laughs> Seriously, there was one that said, there was a, like a blue princess phone and it said, God called. <laughs> my, my maternal grandmother kept a museum of the dead on the second floor of her house. And it was just all this stuff that she had inherited from all these members of her family. And, you know, there were even the clothes of these people were hanging everywhere. And these rooms had this kind of papery decay, and there was a smell of rotting wood. It was terrifying, and I was titillated. So, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, in, in developing the early drafts, and there have been five rewrites over 35 years, um, I was still able to talk to relatives. I, I asked my maternal grandmother about day-to-day -day life on a tobacco farm in the 1920s, and my mother about her childhood there. My father was a knitter in a hosiery mill for 10 years, so he knew that environment, he knew the machinery. One of my cousins was able to explore his memories of family dysfunction with me. And I ate dirt. Uh, specifically, the iron-rich clay that runs all through the Piedmont in North Carolina, where the novel set. I was at work on this scene where one of the protagonists is witnessing the burial of her baby. And I asked my father to mail me a vial of clay from his fields. And this is what I wrote after I ate it. The smell of fresh turned earth was thick on my tongue, like it was me being covered up with dirt. Part of me was going in the ground with Melina. All that was good and kind and took an interest in others the day would never come when smelling a plowed field didn't make me think of Hank and our baby's grave and the part of me that was dead. What are we really hearing here? I've come to realize that the unconscious, unaddressed emotional threads through my early life found voice in the pathos of these characters. Did telling the story heal me? I think it did. It is, of course, not my actual story. But in tapping into those emotions, into my personal hurai, I feel somehow my own story is no longer a secret. And in telling, in the telling, it's, it's taken on a larger life that touches the wounds we all carry. And what I'm hearing back from readers is this emotional, intergenerational story about the legacy of grief and secrets is moving them and speaking to their own lives. A reader wrote me, she's reading my book to her dying father, and that the story is easing his passing. And Mary Ann gave me one of my best reviews the first day we ever spoke. 
when she said, this book gives us all hope for healing. In conclusion, I urge you all to embrace the power of storytelling and explore the depths of your own experiences. Dive into the fractures, the complexities, and the untold stories within families. Use your voice to shed light on the universal themes of longing and healing. Remember the power of Hiraith, that yearning for something lost or never had, and let it guide you in crafting narratives that touch the hearts of others. Let us be the writers who dare to say what others cannot. And through our stories, let us heal, transform, and inspire. Thank you. I love questions. Does anyone have questions? Or are they exhausted? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. The first draft of this book was it was a um, collection of interconnected short stories. You know, a novel told in short stories, and you know, it went out in the world and went around a bit and came back with some feedback and then people were saying, you know, this really needs to be a novel. It, it needs to be, you know, and I was at Duke at, at the writers' conference there and, and um, Kelly Cherry said, she read a draft and she's like, oh, this feels like it's taking place in a closet. You know, it's like, you know, you've got to go away and do a world building. Okay, so I went away and I did a lot of world building. So, you know, it's, it's all that. And, and then, you know, I, it's like I wrote this book and, and it, it had its little time in the world and then it went in a drawer because I just kept writing more books. It was just, I, I hear voices and they were doing a lot of talking. And um, I just kept going. And, you know, but I would come, I'd come back to this story because it's the most personal story that I've written. And each time I came, whoops, each time I came back to it, time had passed. I had grown as a person. It's like weaving a tapestry and you just laying down more and more threads and it just gets richer and richer. And Marianne spoke to this in her introduction. So, uh, yeah, five it's crazy to hear. It's not something people want to hear, but that's my path. <laughs> yes, Marla. Um, your family's response. They're dead. <laughs> Everyone is? Oh, so no one would be a, no one is alive? They'd, they'd... Well, I mean, my grandparents are dead. My parents are dead. So... Um, uh, well, I, you know, uh, one of my cousins read it, and he's, you know, bless his heart, as we say in the South. You know, he's like, oh, yeah, that grandmother, you know, I can see, yeah, I see what you're doing there. You know, and, you know, but the thing he's missing is, and if you missed it, there's this great article 
about um, the author Lori Moore in the New York Times. It's a very lengthy piece, but she speaks to that. You know how freeing it is when you know people are dead and you there's no one to refute the way you're telling the story. But you know what my cousin's missing in, in his reading is he's not seeing the embroidery. And Lori Moore talks about this that transmutes that you know, mean grandmother I had into somebody totally different, and that's where the art comes in. So, yeah, but there's, yeah, there's no one really to, yeah. My father, if he were alive, he would be so proud, but he would be really pissed when he <laughs> heard what I had to say, yeah, yeah, because he was in total denial about his actions right up until the last day. Yes. Here, right? Yeah. Oh gosh, you know, here's my confession. I have it in my notes phonetically, <laughs> so you should say it into Google. <laughs> Just it's like here and then right, here, right, and if you can, you know, give it a good. H i r a e t. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Fred. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's unconscious. Yeah, you know, it's like honestly, I I didn't really get in touch with this until deeply until feedback started coming back from the outside world, you know. I mean, I just, I mean, and I continue to have revelations, like I don't want to give away too much, but there's a scene when Arilla and Darlene, the two of the main characters, they meet and they have this sort of strange kind of connection. But I, I realized that that must have come from the day that I was home alone and the woman my father was having an affair with comes to the door to see my mother. My mother's not home. I had to deal with her. I'm 12. So, you know, it, it's, you know, it's like, it's like, oh my God, wow, that, so that's what I mean about, you know, like the healing of it. And, um, yeah, it, it's, yeah, it just comes, I think, the realization. Yeah. So then in the writing of that, do you work with a therapist who works deeper on the experience? Well, I was in a lot of therapy. <laughs> it sounds very developed, like what you're describing. I'm a trauma therapist. Oh. What you're sharing sounds very... Well, I've done a lot of work. I've done a lot of work. That would require yeah. this kind of work. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that was all research, too. <sighs> <laughs> right, yeah. Writing the books is cheaper than therapy. Yes. Did you consider memoir format? Or was it always there, oh, well, you know, this is not the real story. There, you know, I have written probably 100 pages of a memoir because what really happened is just like unbelievable. <laughs> so um, there may be at some point there may be that memoir that's like the real tale. Yeah. 
which will sh shows you know what's so different from art and life. Yeah. Anybody else? Yes. What was the motivation to want to be able to eat the mud? Did you need that? Oh, I need that kind of stuff. You know, I'm one of those people that I, if I'm writing, I sort of file away everything that I'm experiencing, you know, to give to my characters. Like a couple of months ago, my husband and I had this weird argument and I went right home and like wrote out, you know, like and put it in, you know, the draft of this other novel. Um, you know, it was just too good, right? So, <laughs> you know, I use everything and I, I'm one of those people who keeps a, a weather journal, you know, and so that you, you get all those details and, and um, yeah. So I, I don't know, I had to do it. I've eaten grass too, but that's a story for another day. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, well, I live in, um, well, I call it a sky palace. I live on the 10th floor of a high rise above the Ohio River. And, you know, it's just like the sky is like this incredible drama that goes on and, and you know, that's a river valley, just ginormous river valley, but the weather changes a lot there during the day. It's, the sky can change like 10 times. The clouds are incredible. And I record a lot of that, what I see, um, you know. And things just kind of drop in my head. I, you know, I heard Richard Ford speak once, and he talked about keeping a book of the book. And yes, because, you know, there this, I'm one of these people who I like scramble for a scrap of paper because something just drops in my head and I have to get it before it's gone because I won't be able to get it back. Um, and he talks about keeping this book where you record all these things that just sort of fall, these gifts that come to you, and then when you're going to be writing something, go back to the book of the book and harvest things from there. So I don't know. I love, I love detail and world building, and I think a, a lot of that comes from you know, all the years I spent looking at and writing about art as a journalist and describing what I saw. So, yeah. Cool. Yes? I, I wonder if you could talk about what it's like to take 35 years to write a book. I, I find myself wondering, well, clearly you had a commitment to this work, right? Mm -hmm. at some point Stubborn said, as hell. Yeah. But I think there are a lot of people in this room, including probably myself, that you know, 20 years in, I'd probably just say, maybe this is just not. Well, you know, I was on this great panel at um, the Ohioana Book Festival, and it was about turning points in a writing career. And there were five of us, and, and it, it was really interesting to hear about everyone's path. But, you know, for me, it's like, you know, there are these wonderful things that happen along the way, these breadcrumbs that keep you going. You know, when I was writing 
these, those first stories that were in the first draft of this book, you know, I was bold as hell. I was sending them to Pat Strawn at The New Yorker. She was a fiction editor there. And she would write me personal notes. You know, please don't stop sending your work here. Uh, that can, you know, that's, that will really keep you going. I'm, you, know, I, you know, I sent it to uh, Jonathan Galassi. I sent him some excerpts at Farrar Strauss. And he wrote me back, you know, and he said, well, you really got to keep going with this, you know. And I wrote to Lee Smith, you know, she wrote me back. I mean, you know, those kind of things. You know, it's like I got agents. I had three agents over that 35-year period. You don't want to hear that, I know. Uh, you know, and I won, you know, I had, you know, three different state fellowships, and I've won, like, 20 prizes, and I've published... I don't know, 20 short stories and in and, and anthologies. So things were happening all along the way. Um, you know what I mean? That that I was being affirmed. I mean, God, it's nothing like having the affirmation of readers. I mean, that is the like sweetest dope I've ever had. <laughs> but you know, it's um, it keeps you going, you know, and it's important to be here and be heard and to get that validation to, to encourage you to keep going with what you're doing. Yes? Can you talk about how your uh, career in journalism um, helped or improved your novel writing? Well, you know, they're really two different beasts. Mm -hmm. um, and when I was writing full time, I would split my days between, I would write fiction in the morning when my son was in nursery school or um, elementary school. And then, you know, when I was at home and could be more distracted, I would work on, you know, my article assignments. Um, because, you know, journalism is like, it's all about, you know, I was interviewing a lot of people, um, a lot of wonderful people, and you're waiting for that gem to fall out of somebody's mouth, right? And then you follow that. You follow that, and out of that, you know, you get your lead. And once you've written your lead, it's like putting puzzle pieces together, because then you have to put in the facts that support the argument, right? There's no map like that for fiction. You're just wandering around, as somebody said here earlier this afternoon in Marianne's panel, you're just wandering around in the desert. So, um, you know, I, I don't know, it's, you know, the brain's a muscle, it's really important to write. The more writing, any kind of writing you can do is going to help you. You know, it helps you find words and develop a vocabulary and, but, you know, this has nothing to do with, you know, writing a travel story for travel and leisure or, you know, a, an article about a Vermeer exhibition at the National Gallery for Art and Antiques. So beyond, well, it's the describing, you know. It's, it's because, I, you know, that was the thing. I mean, this is how I came to writing. I was in college and I was a Spanish major. It's junior year. I've just sort of been going with this because, you know, I'm a good mimic. And, <laughs> and I took an art history course because I think I had to. 
And I fell in love with it. And the professor said, oh my God, you write so beautifully about art. You should be an art critic. I had no idea what an art critic was, but by God, nobody had ever told me I could be anything. And so I just like set my sights to graduate school, did the whole thing. So, you know, that's, that was really the, the beginning of everything for me. And, you know, but if I'd been over in the English department, they would have said, oh my God, you tell the most, you know, so much of it is like, what door you open and step through. Yeah. Anybody else? You should go down and see yeah, my book. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you.